After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended uh, to heaven, he gave a promise to his disciples and commissioned them to continue the work he'd begun. This commission is found in Acts 1.8. I want to keep bringing this verse up to us because it's, it's really key to, to understanding the rest of the book. Jesus tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in El Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that brings us into our next section. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 through 9 for the next several five weeks, actually, through the end of November. And the series is called this, Outcasts and Enemies. Outcasts and Enemies. We're in Acts chapter 6, and where we left off back in August, uh, we saw that there were several times in the book leading up to this section where Luke continues to say, Luke, the author of this book, who says, the Lord was adding to the numbers of the disciples daily. You see, the church was exploding. It was multiplying at an exponential rate, but the culture of the day contained boundaries. It contained blockades that kept certain people from hanging out with other people. The Jews, they despised the Romans. The Romans looked down on the Jews. Greek was the common tongue of the empire, but Hebrew or Aramaic was the ancient language of Israel. Economics, they also came into play. People aligned themselves within classes, the wealthy and also the ruling class, uh, but then also the working middle class and then down, down at the bottom, the poor. How would the gospel impact those who were viewed as outsiders? If you were a Jew living in Jerusalem and knew the language of Jesus during his ministry, which was likely Aramaic, you had a great advantage to getting into his kingdom. You could hear his words from his very lips, right? If you had a strong family and income, you also had the freedom of time and resources to hit the pause button on life and, and go and, and follow him and, and consider the message of the gospel. But, if, but what about this? If you're relatively poor and, and maybe alone, what could a message about a Messiah and sin and suffering, and death and resurrection and judgment do for you? Is this good news message, is this mission really for outcasts and enemies or those that were considered outsiders? We're going to see, beginning with this passage, that the gospel proclaimed by the early disciples was bigger than any boundary or any blockade that the world or Satan could throw at it. We remember Jesus' words to, to uh, one of the first disciples and apostle Peter in Matthew 16, 18, excuse me, 16, 18. It says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, there's no outsider. There's no outcast. There's no enemy who's beyond the powerful reach of the loving hand of God revealing in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Our series over the next five weeks, it's going to focus on this truth. The good news of Jesus Christ is for all, for all, even outcasts and enemies. So let's take a look at our passage this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Follow along as I read aloud. It says this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're going to see here as we examine this short narrative, we're going to see that this community, this this community of Jesus followers faces a problem, but then we also see that a solution is proposed, and then a result flows from how they resolve the problem, how they handled it. See, Luke, the author of Acts, he doesn't need to hide the warts of the early church. No, he puts them down in writing right here in Scripture, preserved forever so that readers like you And me and us together, we can witness the power of the gospel, that good news about Jesus over the sin and brokenness of humanity in all its forms. This is instructive for us. As as a community, just like theirs in many ways, like the first church at Jerusalem, we have our own challenges and conflicts. I want you to know there are challenges and conflicts that we face right here in this room today and in this culture. So what we're going to do is we're going to learn today how this, conference, uh, this congregation confronted rather than ignored or ran away from the conflict. For their community, as with ours and with every other church, how we handle conflict either ruins us or it grows us up into maturity. You see, conflict, it'll either make us or it'll break us. And that leads us to our big idea this morning. This is our big idea. How we handle communal conflict will either make us or break us. I'm a sports fan. I love college football. My favorite team, the Ohio State Buckeyes, were playing yesterday. And they got to this moment in the fourth quarter where they were down with only nine minutes to go. And it was a make-or-break moment, and they decided to rise up to the challenge, and they beat the Penn State Nittany Lions. I know some of you, that may offend you. I don't care. But hey, I was excited about it. But it's that make-or-break moment, and you see it in sports, but you see it in all of life. You've had those moments where you look back and you realize there's a fork in the road, and which direction I choose has the ability to either make my plans moving forward or it could break my plans for a long, long time. But this isn't just about our plans. This is about God's plan and how we handle conflict in this community and what we can learn today could either make us or break us. And so we're going to see first the problem. We're going to see the solution, secondly, and then thirdly, we're going to see the result. The problem, the solution, and the result, and then we're going to take a look at some lessons that we can learn from from the early disciples. First of all, the problem. This comes from verses 1 and 2. Now, it says here that uh, these disciples, there were some that were complaining that their widows, the Greek-speaking widows, the Hellenists, were being overlooked by the community that was also speaking a different language, was speaking Hebrew. So you see two different groups start to form together. Now, this is a far cry from Acts 4.32. It says in, in that verse, earlier in the life of this church, the full number of those who believed were of one heart... And one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What a testimony, right? All these people together, one heart, one soul, they were, they were together, they had one mind together, but we see that there started to be cracks and fractures in this oneness, in this unity. Was this, this oneness, was it just a temporary fad 
to something that they were experiencing for a short time? Would they give into the hypocrisy that characterized the religious leaders of Judaism that said one thing that did it, but did another? How would they handle these problems that posed a viable threat to the community and their witness to a watching world? Well, what were some of these problems? Well, the first thing is there was discrimination. Discrimination. Hellenist widows were being overlooked. These were Greek-speaking Jews, likely from the dispersion of the Jews all throughout the known world at that time that was primarily Greek-speaking and influenced by Greek culture. But they were, they were being overlooked, these Hellenist or Greek-speaking widows. Who were they being overlooked by? There's a, another group in this church that primarily spoke the ancient language of the Jews from Palestine, of the Hebrew Israelite language, and, and, and were following their customs. They likely spoke Aramaic, which was a derivative of ancient Hebrew, likely, likely the language of Jesus. So you have these Greek speakers and these Hebrew speakers, and the Hebrew speakers, they were kind of controlling the direction of the community. They were dispersing their goods and making sure that widows were taken care of. But over here, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked and forgotten. They were outsiders. There started to form within one community of Jesus followers, two separated by language, separated by culture. This was discrimination, friends. This is partiality. This is prejudice. And they were being forgotten in the daily distribution of food. Discrimination. Can discrimination exist in a church? Amen, it can. You don't have to look far. Just read some of the history of our very own country here, and you can see churches all throughout the early days of our history that were segregated, that those that, that were not white were discriminated against. It certainly can exist in any church, and it existed in the church of the first century. In these moments, they had a make-or-break moment in the life of their church. Well, this discrimination, it led to division. It led to grumbling and complaining. In response to this, the Hellenists were brought a complaint, uh, they, or they brought a complaint. Now, you may think to yourself, well, that's, that's legitimate, right? To bring this complaint, maybe to write it down and submit it to the apostles. Hey, we see an oversight here, and we think you ought to take care of it. But, but this word actually has to do with grumbling and complaining. And it says that this complaint didn't just get submitted. It actually kind of arose. Everybody's like, whoa, something's going on here. We can see that there's a group of people that are grumbling and complaining. Uh, it doesn't say that they legitimately brought their concern to the apostles. Rather, the Hellenists were grumbling and complaining about the discriminatory behaviors and attitudes of the Hebrews, and their feelings became known publicly. This is not the way to address it. We see discrimination, and in response to that, we see division start to happen, dividing this people that were just a few chapters ago described as one heart, one soul, one mind together, but because of discrimination and because of grumbling and division, they started to be fractured apart and the apostles recognize this and they think to themselves what are we going to do and the, the third problem that was posed is, is right there in, in verse 2 it says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should give up the preaching of, of the word of God to serve tables you see what the threat was here for the apostles was distraction there was discrimination there was division and now there was a concern of getting distracted from the primary mission that they were called to do. The apostles, they saw the discrimination and the division, and they knew something had to be done about it, but it was not right. It was not appropriate for them to stop proclaiming the good news about Jesus and teach people 
uh, stop teaching people to obey his commands so that they would administer serving tables in the distribution of this food to all the widows without partiality, without discrimination, and to solve the problem of division. So we see a priority emerge from the apostles' words. They must proclaim the gospel. The mission of Jesus would be under serious threat if they stopped preaching and focused only on administrating and administering the needs, the cares and needs that these widows, these Hebrew widows needed. So how is this problem going to be solved? What's going to happen? we got to get rid of the discrimination. we got to stop the division, but we can't be distracted from the primary mission. What are we going to do? And we see the solution come right before us. We see two things here. First of all, these apostles, they listened. They listened, and then they acted. First, they listened. The apostles, they were in tune with the community. As leaders with full plates, you know, of just, you know, kind of taking the gospel all over to the ends of the earth. No big task, right? But even with this full plate, they were not just thinking about the next big thing. No, this is a core, core uh, value of leadership that these leaders were in tune and they cared and nurtured the current disciples just as important as winning new disciples. They listened to the needs of the community. But they didn't just listen. They didn't just listen with compassion and sensitivity and and honesty and humility. They also acted. The apostles, they didn't ignore the problems, but they faced them head on. First of all, they identified. Uh, They identified people who can meet the need, right? Sensitivity to those who brought the complaint. These men were likely also Hellenists. We see these seven men that were chosen. And, you know, some of you might have read this before and you think, oh, these must be the first deacons. It's very possible that these were the very first deacons, but we're not told that explicitly. I do believe that these were the prototype, the ones that would set the example for the future office of deacon or servant in the local church. But they, they found these guys. And, and what's interesting about these guys is that they have Greek names. They're likely those that could lead and be sensitive to the needs of the Greek-speaking people within their congregation. They were considering them. They chose them from Hellenistic cultures to lead and serve the people so that there would be justice and that there would be fairness and impartiality. Well, what did they do next? They appointed them, right? The apostles said, you go ahead and choose the people and we're going to appoint them. Appointment of the men who were assembled for this vital task. See, the apostles knew that this task had to be handled with care. The men chosen had to be full of the spirit, which would be evidenced by a transformed life of character and integrity and full of wisdom. I love this. I love this. A solution that God blesses is a solution that is full of wisdom. These men had supernatural wisdom, not from themselves, but from God that would reflect his priorities for the community. And so just briefly, just to look at these seven, we won't cover all of them, but first of all, we see Stephen. It says that he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. I love that description. He was full of faith. Can you think of anybody in our congregation who say, that person is full of faith, right? Faith that stands under pressure. Stephen was characterized by a big faith in a big God when times get tough. You know, he's the kind of person I'd want to stand with me when the going gets tough. I know you know the phrase, right? When the going gets tough, finish it with me, the tough get going, right? Stephen had a tough faith that was not easily shaken. And we're going to see a lot more about Stephen in the next couple of weeks. We're going to learn about him next week. But it says that Philip was also chosen. Philip was known as Philip the evangelist, Philip, the gospel speaker. 
We're going to learn more about him also in the coming weeks. He always saw an opportunity for the gospel, even to, and here's why I think he was such a wise choice, even to the outsiders. His heart was drawn toward taking the gospel to new places. He was a pioneer who understood that the message of the good news of Jesus the Messiah was for people of all ethnic and cultural backgrounds. He preached the gospel, as we're going to see, to Samaritans who were hated by the Jews, and the Samaritans hated the Jews as well, and an African man who was a eunuch, Philip the Evangelist. What a wise choice of Stephen and Philip. But it says, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. We, we don't know much about them, but we know that these men had character. They had wisdom, and they had the cultural background and sensitivity that was evident to all that the Spirit, the Spirit had prepared these men for this important task. The seven were chosen by the full number of disciples. This is instructive for us too, right? The whole congregation was involved in this appointment. Uh, They were appointed and prayed over by the apostles, but they were chosen by the people from the people. This is a good example to us of healthy and wise leadership. The apostle listened to the needs of those they led, they responded, and they invited participation of the group, and they delegated the work to qualified workers and qualified leaders. Friends, this is what we heard last week. This is multiplication. We're seeing leaders multiplied, wise people, people that are full of the spirit, full of faith, that are ready to take up a new task so that the gospel can continue to go out and so that the needs of the community could be met. And then finally, what did the apostles do? They delegated it to these seven men. We don't read much about it, but we see that the needs were met, that the discrimination ended, that division was brought back into unity, and that the mission was not distracted. There was focus from the apostles, and these men were raised up to meet this very, very important need. Now, it says that the 12 apostles and these seven served the apostles, you might kind of think, well, that sounds kind of arrogant. We can't get there to serve tables because we've got to preach the word of God. Well, actually, it says that they had to minister to the word of God. It's the same word, serving the word of God, serving tables. You see, whether it's from the top down or the bottom up, all of us as a part of the community of God, we are called to serve, serve, serve. And that's what these men were doing. They were serving tables to administrate the needs of the community, and the apostles continued to serve the word of God. Both duties were vital to the mission of the church. However, we also see that the priority of the proclamation and instruction of the gospel was served by the administration of the church's resources to meet the needs of the saints. So we have this work of the church. It was a a both and ministry of the church. They were both proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were meeting the tangible needs of the community. This is not an either-or ministry. This is a both-and ministry. You see, there's a lot of debate today. Well, what should the church be about? Should we be meeting the needs? Should we be seeking justice and righteousness in our communities and in our world? Amen. Yes, we should. And it's not either that or. There are some that would say, well, we can't do that because we can't get uh, distracted from the mission of preaching and teaching the Word of God. See, back then in in this time, it would have been like, why is there even a debate? It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles were devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer, and the duty of administering to help the vulnerable society was met. What was the result? What a great solution, right? What was the result? We see it in verse 7. 
the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied. Not just multiplied, but multiplied greatly. I know Matt Rumbaugh loves this verse. He, that's his favorite word, multiplication. He loves to see when disciples are multiplied. And in this moment, in this break, make or break moment, this church sets aside their sinful differences and says, no, we're going to find a God-given solution so that disciples can multiply greatly. Because of the compelling community that preached the message of the powerful grace of God to sinners through Jesus Christ and put that grace on display by caring for those whom society would have considered outsiders and outcasts, they showed and proclaimed a message that brings real hope, a message that brings real peace, a message that brings real help to those in need. It says the disciples were increasing and the word of God continued to increase greatly. And then at the end, it's amazing. Even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These are some of the people who were at the council to condemn Jesus. Just a, a few books over and a few chapters before they were condemning this movement. Now they say, we see something on display unlike anything we could see anywhere else. And we're attracted to this and we believe this gospel message. What a revival. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against this movement. Amen? What a movement. And to remind us again, what's our big idea today? It's this, how we handle communal conflict will either make us or break us. We like to ask the question around here, what does this mean for Monday? What are the lessons that, that God is asking us to learn so that we don't just hear a sermon, but that we're transformed by it? What are the new attitudes? What are the new thoughts? What are the new emotions? What are the new behaviors that we should be in, uh, applying to our lives so that we can live more closely aligned with the commands of Jesus? Well, we've got three lessons I believe we can learn, and I'm sure you could find more from this passage. Let's take a look at these lessons here. First of all, the threat of division can cripple even the strongest church. So, Fight to protect our unity. Division can cripple even the strongest church. I don't care how beautiful our church may look on the surface, friends. I know we've got this, this building that we rent, but that's not the church. It's you and me. I, I don't care if we've got the best music. I do not care if we've got applicable sermons, friendly people, effective programs, great small groups. If we've got prejudices, partiality, division, and selfishness lying below the surface in our hearts, they can grow like a cancer. You see, earlier this week, I thought this was interesting, on October 24th in the San Francisco Bay Area, where my family and I just moved from, in Atherton, California, uh, there were some excavating crews that were uh, fully excavated a car that police said was buried in the backyard of a Northern California mansion 30 years ago. Can you believe this? Did you see this story? Anybody see this story? There was a car buried in the backyard of a mansion, and they were trying to, to get this mansion, uh, the backyard of this mansion, matching it, right? They were doing some landscaping. And they found a Mercedes-Benz filled with bags of unused concrete that was discovered last week by landscapers in the affluent town of Atherton in the Silicon Valley. Cadaver dogs brought to the scene made slight notifications of possible human remains. I mean, gross, right? Of three separate occasions, police said in a statement. But this homeless likely... Uh, uh, this, uh, in the backyard of this multi-million dollar mansion, this car was buried probably in the 90s when a man who uh, built the mansion owned it. 
This man was arrested in the 90s for insurance fraud and was even accused of murder in the 1960s. Now, can you imagine this? Owning this big, beautiful home and paying who knows how much for this in the Silicon Valley, right? And then having someone come to landscape it only to find that in the backyard was buried a stolen, rotting car underneath the surface. Friends, just like this home, we can have a mansion-like church on the surface, but still have remnants of sinful prejudices, discrimination, and division buried in our hearts. This can cripple us and hijack the mission that Jesus has called us to. It was a great threat to that early church in Acts 6. But, but the good news about Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the scriptures that we hold to uh, we can be called to something so much better. God has rescued us, and he's gathering people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation to be a part of this new family of God in unity, justice, righteousness, and peace. Friends, I'm telling you, I love our church but I do not want, and I don't believe you want our church, and I don't believe our elders want this church to just be a white church in town. Amen? No, no, no. I, I don't want to just be a black church in town, or a Korean church, or a Chinese church, or a Vietnamese church, or a Hispanic church. No, we're going to fight to protect the unity that God has designed for us. We're going we're gonna to dig down even if we have to to find the, the prejudices, the partialities, the discrimination, maybe things that we didn't even know we had in our hearts to say, Lord Jesus set us free. We want to be united in one with each other through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when we are, as we continue to be this one family of God, not characterized by the color of our skin or the language we speak, but by the Savior that we serve, it will show the world what they cannot figure out, that God has figured out that he has redemptive plans for every tribe, tongue, nation, and people in all this world. I love this quote from John Perkins in his book, Dream With Me. It's, he says, think about it. This dream with me for a moment. Think about it. If we actually went to church together, if we actually considered our brothers and sisters of different ethnicities and classes to be vital members of the body of Christ, what a great witness we would be for the world in which we live. I'm all for churches being a part of the nonviolent marches and protests that have happened in the wakes of violent killings, but these protests happen only after a tragic event has taken place. I want the church to be, and I believe he's saying that God wants the church to be what prevents these acts from ever happening. I want the church to be a community that is so dedicated to loving our neighbors, to caring for the poor and neglected, and to living out true reconciliation that these killings do not even take place. I want the white police officers to be sitting next to the young black boys in church on Sundays, singing songs and praying together, learning to be members of the same family of God. I want the single black mother and the family that recently immigrated from Latin America to go up and take communion together. I want the older widow who's been living out of, out of a lonely life in a nursing home to be visited and cared for by the young man whose third grade test scores said he would end up in prison someday. I want this to be the picture of the church. I want to see a real community of love. Everyone wants to fight crime, fight violence, fight racism, and fight injustice, but love is still the final fight. And unless we have these communities of love, 
we will never see this dream realized. Friend, this, this dream, it, it didn't originate with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It didn't originate with Abraham Lincoln or the founding fathers or even the apostles in Acts. No, this dream is God's and he's forming his people into a glorious, multi-ethnic, multicultural, global family under the lordship of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. But will we fight to protect this unity or will we drift to the default of segregating into our comfort zones. That's the challenge that we have here today. And I don't think any of us, it escapes us that we can look around this room and, and we see faces of all different colors and we see, hear language of different types and, and I'm so blessed that in this community we can be together and the thing that marks us the most is the Holy Spirit in us and this Jesus that we sing about and that we serve. But we must fight to protect that unity. Second lesson we must not ignore our brothers and sisters when they hurt or are in need. So what do we do? We must listen humbly and act lovingly. You see, God wants from us, what he wants from us is a pure religion. And sometimes we get that word kind of mixed up. Really, religion is just devotion to him and to his commands. That's what he wants from his people. We often paint religion to be a bad thing, and it can be. Religion that's focused on, on human goodness and human duty and effort apart from the gift of the grace of God, uh, from God is a worthless religion. But this is what James says is real religion. You want to know what God's really impressed with? James 1.27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, the, the gospel is put on display through pure and undefiled religion that cares for the vulnerable. We must seek to care for those that are hurting and in need. But how do we do that? Well, like the apostles did, we listen humbly, not assuming that we fully understand one another's needs. No, we listen, and in our listening, we extend compassion. We don't just listen, we also act lovingly, with the best interest of others in mind. This is what our God did for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We act. We see the need. And if we can meet that need, we act because we care, because God cares. And this is what reflects pure and undefiled religion. This is what characterized the early church even in the second century. Uh, Aristides, I think I'm saying his name right, the Greek philosopher, he gave a, a defense of Christianity in the second century to King Hadrian. And this is what he says as he's describing, his, making his case for Christianity. He says, they love one another. Well, I mean, what, a, what an amazing thought, right? They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. This is what characterized the early church. This is the kind of church, the kind of religion that when we put it on display, a watching world sees and they see something different, something that the world cannot solve in and of themselves. They've been trying for millennia to solve these problems, but God has provided solutions in his people. Kevin Palau in his book, Unlikely, says, the church was radical in generosity, tireless in service, and joyful in suffering. Friends, brokenness is on our doorstep. 
Our temptation can be just to do church each Sunday, to attend a small group during the week, have great private times of Bible reading and prayer, and maybe even serve on one of our teams, yet our religion may be worthless if we ignore the needs, the hurts, and the concerns of our brother and of our sister. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of Christian has God called you to be? What needs has, has God been, and through his spirit, been making you aware of in your world recently? Will you jump in to help? Will you listen? Will you act? Will you care? Thirdly, finally for our lessons, churches that truly honor Jesus take a both-and approach to proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. So what do we do? We do good, and we keep the main thing the main thing. Do good and keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm from California, not originally, but I've lived there most of my life. There's this little sub-religion in California called In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Anybody ever been to In-N-Out Burger? Uh, In-N-Out Burger is the best burger on the planet. No, um, uh, hey, Five Guys is great, but uh, In-N-Out, it's the best. Well, what makes In-N-Out special? Why do people line up in their cars? If you've been to California, you've seen it. They line up in their cars around the block to get through the drive through Why do people love this place so much? I would think when you drive up, you've seen it. You go up to the menu, uh, you know, in the store or if you're in the drive through What do you see? The most basic menu on the planet. Hamburger, cheeseburger, double hamburger, double cheeseburger, fries, soda, and milkshakes. Boom, there's your menu. Uh, I think they serve coffee too, but you get my idea here. They keep the main thing the main thing. It's crystal clear what you're going to get when you go. Burgers and fries, better than you've ever tasted in all the planet, right? They're wonderful. It's great. They keep the main thing the main thing. And without making this silly in this moment, we're called to stand for so many things in this world. As God's people, we're called to stand for justice and righteousness in this world. We're called to confront the sinful attitudes and behaviors in ourselves and in this world with the truth of God's word. We're called to care for the hurting and the broken and the needing, but these things are not our mission. Did you hear what I said? We are called to care for these things, but these things are not our mission. These things serve our mission. Our mission here at Fairfax Bible Church and, and articulated in God's word is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations as we live in loving community. Did you hear that? We seek to glorify God by the means of multiplying and making disciples. And the mode is that we do it through loving community. The loving, just, righteous, listening, caring, acting community we're called to be is for the purpose of making disciples through the proclamation and demonstration of the good news of Jesus Christ from the Bible. That's our mission. We do good, but we seek to keep the main thing the main thing. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? They said this, the church has been given a specific mission by its Lord and teaching people to obey Christ's commands is a non-negotiable part of that mission. We go, we proclaim, we baptize, and we teach all to the end of making lifelong, die-hard disciples of Jesus Christ who obey everything he commanded. I love how they put that. That's the mission of our church because that's what we believe is the mission of God's church. 
What kind of church do you think God wants us to be? Does he command and expect us to care for the lost, the lonely, and the left out of society? Absolutely he does. But many organizations can do the exact same thing and not get any one person closer to their creator. No, we care because we have a commission, and that's to make followers, make disciples of Jesus. We must always keep the main thing, the main thing. This is our big idea this morning. We've, we've, got a, we've got a decision that will make or break us. How will we handle conflict in our community? Will we love? Will we serve? Will we care? Will we listen? Will we fight to protect our unity? And will we keep the main thing the main thing? But friends, I, I want to end with this. You can't do it. I can't do it either. We can put forth our best efforts toward unity, care, and focus, but they will always fall short. Why? Because of our sinful human nature. Because of that, we tend to focus on one thing and ignore the others. We, we desire unity, but we compromise truth. We desire care, but we compromise focus. We desire the truth, but we compromise grace. But there is one friend who is full of grace and truth. John 1.14, speaking of Jesus, says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, He met us in our deepest need. We were all the lost, the least, the left out, and the lonely. Our sin creates separation from God and division between our fellow man we feel the burden that our sin created, and Jesus stepped right into the brokenness. The Son of God took on human flesh to enter into our suffering and was forsaken on the cross and during our punishment so that we could experience real unity, real relationship with God, and real unity with others. He also came so that we could have a real care that meets our deepest needs in this life and in the next and he also came bringing the real uncom uncompromising truth that we can never save ourselves, but he saved us through his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we close, I, I want us to consider again this message of the gospel of Jesus. And in this message, we see the perfect balance of grace and truth. Jesus is alone the source of hope for human flourishing. Because he's full of grace and truth, his followers can experience and display lasting unity, deep, compassionate care for the hurting, and commitment to proclaiming uncompromised truth about our sin and our need for the Savior. He's the one, in fact, while hanging on the cross, taking on the sins of the world, look down, if you remember in John 19, and he sees and hears his mother weeping, a widow who's crying. She's losing her son. How will she be cared for? And in that moment, Jesus didn't ignore, but he listened and he acted. He turned to his friend, we believe John the Baptist, and he said, my friend, behold your mother. And in that moment, Jesus passed on the responsibility to make sure his mother's cared for. Right there as he's hanging on the cross. There is no more beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, balanced picture of grace and truth than Jesus Christ. Our best efforts to meet human uh, needs, the needs of outsiders, outcasts, and enemies, they pale in comparison to the grace and truth of Jesus, who is glorious, glorious enough 
to fill the infinite depths of our spiritual need, yet close and compassionate enough to fill the simplest of needs to feed us each day. For Jesus, it was, it was never an either or, it's a both and. For outcasts and enemies like you and like me. At one time, we were all outsiders, but God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All who come to him in repentance and, and trust will find a seat at the table of God's kingdom. And I'm telling you here today, if you've never taken a seat at God's kingdom table, he's made a place for you today. No matter your past, no matter your history, no matter your, your demographic that society wants to put you in, here today you can have a seat at the table through the one who is full of grace and truth. Just come to him. And you're gonna find that you're welcome in his name. And you're gonna find that he is the source of truth and grace that humanity longs for to meet our deepest needs, both in the present life and the life to come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have showed up to show us a different way, that we don't have to keep the discrimination and the division and the distraction buried underneath our hearts and in this church, but through the grace of Jesus, we can, un we can dig them up and find healing and hope. Father, I pray that you teach us to fight for unity, that there would be no division in this place, prejudice or partiality, but all would be welcomed here. Father, I pray that you teach us to care for those that are in need by listening and acting in love to meet their needs. Father, keep our church focused on the mission that you've given to us to make disciples of all nations. And Father, we confess that our only hope for this is through your son, Jesus. We look to him today as we, as we stand and, and prepare to sing this final song. We look to him today and we say, we love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you fill in all the gaps of our lives and you give us a true picture of grace and truth. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.